Welcome to Holy Unhappiness, conversations about the expectations we have of what the life of faith will feel like. I'm your host, Amanda Held Opelt, author of the book, Holy Unhappiness, God, Goodness, and the Myth of the Blessed Life. Each week, I'll be speaking with writers, pastors, artists, and friends about the myths we believe about the good life. Together, we'll reimagine what blessing can look like if we are willing to look beyond our culture's definition of happiness and success. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Welcome back to the podcast. So a couple months ago, we wrapped on the podcast series I was doing in conjunction with my book release, and that was such a rewarding experience for me. The interviews were so rich and insightful, and I kind of missed my weekly conversations with folks. And to be honest, I was still kind of processing and learning and growing when it comes to concepts like happiness and joy and hope and contentment and peace and yeah, just those expectations we have of what faith is going to feel like. And these are all themes that we tend to contemplate this time of year. So I thought maybe I'd revive the podcast for four more episodes and have the conversations correspond with the four traditional themes of Advent. Now, first, a word about Advent. I know that in 21st century America, the four weeks leading up to Christmas are typically filled with holiday parties and celebrations and tons of food and drink and festivities, but it's not always been this way. In fact, beginning around the 5th century, Christians began observing the season of Advent, which is derived from the Latin word adventus, meaning arrival or coming. Uh, And they observed this by fasting, by focusing on prayer, uh, contemplation, and repentance. They were preparing their hearts for the morning of Christmas and the 12 days of celebration that followed from December 25th until Epiphany on January 6th. Um, hence the old Christmas song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. So Advent was almost like a mini Lent, a somber season of waiting, of anticipation leading up to the big event. Now, historically, the church has focused on four weekly themes during the season of Advent, and these themes are sometimes observed with the ritualistic lighting of Advent candles and an Advent wreath. You're probably familiar. Uh, Week one, the theme is hope, and that really serves as the foundational virtue for all of Advent. Uh, Week two, the focus is on the theme of peace. 
Week three is joy, which is sometimes marked by lighting a pink candle rather than the typical purple candle. And week four, just before Christmas, the theme is love. These are themes that have come up again and again in the conversations I've had on this podcast. So I thought it would be fun to just dive right in and really soak in these concepts with folks who are trusted voices on the topics. And I don't know about you, but the world feels especially dark and unstable right now, which frankly is exactly what the season of Advent is for. The very heart of Advent is to long for redemption, to long for the coming of the kingdom and end to our sorrow and to anticipate Christ's peacemaking presence in this very dark world. And so my hope and prayer is that this podcast could serve as a companion to you as you make your way through the sometimes hectic but always holy season leading up to Christmas. I'll begin each podcast with a brief poem and close each podcast with a psalm from from the lectionary. Uh, So this is a portion of scripture that the people of God have been meditating on through Advent for generations, namely the psalms from the lectionary. Today's poem was written by Malcolm Geit, whose work I've read before on the podcast. And this poem is called, Because We Hunkered Down. Because We Hunkered Down. These bleak and freezing seasons may mean grace, when they are memory. In time to come, when we speak truth, then they will have their place, telling the story of our journey home, through dark December and stark January, with all its disappointments, through the murk and dreariness of frozen February, when even breathing seemed unwelcome work. Because through all these we held together, because we shunned the impulse to let go, because we hunkered down through our dark weather and trusted the soil beneath the snow, slowly, slowly, turning a cold key, spring will unlock our hearts and set us free. I am thrilled to have with me as today's guest, Cole Arthur Riley. Cole is the author of the critically acclaimed book, This Here Flesh, which was one of my favorite, most beautiful books I've read in the last few years. And she will be releasing her latest book, Black Liturgies, Prayer, Poems, and Meditations for Staying Human in January. Cole was mostly raised in Pittsburgh and studied writing at the University of Pittsburgh, but traces her love of words back to her father, who would bribe her and her siblings to write poems and stories to get out of chores or for cold, hard cash. That sounds like a deal. And her grandma, who is part writer and part sage. Cole is also the creator of the much-beloved Black Liturgies, which many of you may know from Instagram. It's a space that integrates spiritual practice with Black emotion, Black literature, and the Black body, and it is a project of the Center for Dignity and Contemplation where Cole serves as curator. I am so excited for you to hear Cole share her thoughts on hope. Cole, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming onto the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad that we could could be together. Yeah. 
Um, so I want to start actually with a, a little confession. Um, your book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us, I have actually not finished it. And the reason is because um, it's one of those books that was just so breathtaking and so beautiful. And I loved it so much that I was just dreading it being over. Mm-hmm. And so I got to like the last, I have like two chapters left and I was just kind of like putting it off and putting it off, finishing it. Cause I just didn't want my journey with this book to be over. <laughs> and then, then a friend asked if she could borrow it. And so I gave it to her. So I still, I'm actually just so happy because I still have two chapters of this beautiful, beautiful book um, to read during Advent. So, so yeah, I think I want to start just by saying thank you for this gorgeous memoir and for the labor that went into speaking so beautifully and so precisely and so imaginatively in it. It really is one of the best books I've read in years. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for um, for reading. Yeah. Um, and you have a new book coming out that we're going to talk about at, at the end, but um, I want to start with just a few questions I have for you um, in light of reading this here flash and also following you on your uh, the Instagram um, account that you created, Black Liturgies, which is very well known to many people. Um, you write often uh, about this concept of hope and it's Advent. And so we are going week by week with the themes of Advent. And this week, the first week is hope. So I think I want to start by asking you a question that I'll ask all my guest, which is just, how would you define hope? What what does hope mean to you? Hmm. Yeah, I, for me, I think of hope as a, a practice for imagination, um, for imagination for the beautiful. And I'm, you know, I'm less and less convinced it has anything to do with, like, certainty or even consistent belief. I think it's a discipline of imagining and reimagining, you know, even if that dreaming only lasts for a moment, if you can only sustain Mm. it for a moment, I think there's meaning in that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I like how you talk about it as a discipline. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, hope is a theological virtue. And as I've been studying a little bit more about hope, I've, I've learned that like hope is like notoriously lacking among the ancient Greco-Roman virtues. You know, they had their list of virtues like justice and prudence, but hope was not necessarily one that they talked about Mm -hmm. um, as being worth pursuing. It was kind of this seen as this fleeting or uh, fragile concept or maybe um, something that belonged to people who were more weak-minded. Um but but I don't know. I think that we struggle as a society to define hope now. Like, do you, do you see maybe a difference between hope and optimism? Like, I think mm-hmm. I always thought hope was just optimism and being um, kind of maybe seeing the world through rose-colored glasses, and that mm-hmm. has shifted for me. Has it for you as well? Yeah, absolutely. I I used to have quite the aversion to language of hope and. I still sometimes do, if I'm honest. I think like language of hope has been really wielded against oppressed people, suffering people, you know, throughout time as a way to kind of placate them, as a way to say, get over it, move on. And this kind of um, toxic positivity that can kind of fester in communities that are claiming hope but are really uh reducing it to to like mere optimism i don't think Mm. 
I think the, the older I've gotten and, and the more I've read and listened to other people, I think hope is a lot more complicated than that. And if it's being used as a way to kind of silence someone's suffering and silence reality, you know, silence the presence, I think it can be a really dangerous, a really dangerous mm. thing or, or wielded in dangerous ways, at least. And I, I'm, I'm resisting that. Yeah, I have to resist that often and think, no, it, uh, hope isn't synonymous with optimism. There's nothing inherently wrong with optimism unless it's kind of enforced on other yeah. people yeah. as um, the only kind of way of existing in the world with integrity or with faith. And sometimes Christians tend to, to assert that. Hmm. Yeah. So if hope can sometimes be wielded, or at least the optimistic form of hope, the sugar-coated form of hope, if it can be wielded as a weapon, you also write and reflect a lot about how hope can be operationalized as a tool of resistance as well. And um, recently in your account, Black Liturgies, you wrote, be careful what doors you allow cynicism to look to lock in you. All dreaming is dangerous to those who benefit from our hopelessness. And you quote Cornelius Eady, who said, cynicism is a form of obedience. Mm -hmm. And you also quote Cornell West, who said, I am no way optimistic, but I remain a prisoner of hope. Um, mm -hmm. And your breath prayer for that post is so beautiful. Um, you say, inhale, cynicism won't save me. Exhale, I protect my dreaming. Inhale, liberation is coming exhale, I keep watch. So I'm just curious for you to unpack this a little bit more for us. When you note that cynicism is a form of obedience, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I used to think, I'll start with, with my kind of, I don't know, I shouldn't say natural, but my learned way of existing in the world is through cynicism. And I think mm. I kind of adopted this mindset in college, I think it's not uncommon in young people that like cynicism was somehow a form of wisdom, you know, like mm. to know that the world is terrible, you know, and to be prepared for that terror in some ways felt like the wiser way of being. Mm. And I think that was a really sinister trick and a really unhelpful reduction. And um, I've been challenged by, I mean, poets like Cornelius Eady and people like James Baldwin and Toni Morrison who are kind of countering that message, which I think mm. young people can kind of latch on to the message of cynicism so readily, especially when they're kind of experiencing this awakening to like yeah. injustice for the first time and, and the connectedness of oppression. It can really lead you to, to places. And um, I think when Cornelius Eady says cynicism is a form of obedience he's saying you know it's a caution of the fact that if you're um always prepared and if you always assume the terrible then you actually grow to uh uphold the status quo mm -hmm. you you become a person you form yourself into a person who is so ready for the terrible that you in some ways accept it you know mm -hmm. to, to to only be ready for humanity's worst kind of presentation of itself is to kind of accept hum hum humanity's worst presentation yeah. of itself and i to think submit to it exactly yeah. and i think you know what 
Cornelius Eadie and James Baldwin, Tony Morrison would say is like, we can't afford that. Cynicism isn't mm. really a, a luxury that oppressed people can afford. And, and, um, much like despair, you know, there's, I recently saw this interview with James Baldwin and the interviewer, um, her name is escaping me. She, Mavis, I'm forgetting her last name, but it's a a really good interview. And and she asked James Baldwin, you know, are you still, are you still in despair of the world? Hmm. And James Baldwin, you know, looks at her and goes, I'm, I'm not in despair of the world. I've, I've never been in despair of the world. And he says, I can't afford despair. He says, uh, I can't look at my nieces and my nephews and, you know, I can't tell the children that there's no hope. And um, it really, it really stuck with me. He says, I've, you know, actually he said, I've never been in despair of the world. I've been enraged. I've been enraged Mm. by the world, but never despair. I can't afford despair. And I think that's so, that's such a beautiful kind of correction of that assumption of that to be aware of the terrors of the world, you were, you know, given over to despair. Bolton resisted yeah. that. Toni Morrison, of course, her famous line of like, there's no time for despair. Uh, and I, 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 I really resonate resonate with those words. Yeah. 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 I actually love, I love how you write in your book that the opposite of love isn't rage. It's, it's apathy. Actually, there's a quote in there. I just sent to a friend yesterday who was struggling with anger because she had been wronged. And, Mm -hmm. and, but you talk about how anger is still engagement. Like when you're angry, you're still in it. You're still invested. It is apathy uh, and, and cynicism that disengages you from the from from the world from others from your connectedness and mm-hmm. i think that's a really beautiful way to think about rage and and yeah. holy holy indignation mm-hmm. in a lot of ways yeah and i just yeah i just love yeah i do think we tend to think of joy and merriment <laughs> as a childish disposition but maybe it is the most wizened way to live mm-hmm. wow yeah um, you write in this your flesh, um, you know, on that note, <laughs> practicing wonder is a powerful tool against despair. It works nearly the same muscles as hope in that you find yourself believing in goodness and beauty, even when the evidence gives you every reason to believe that goodness and beauty are void. Um, and a few pages earlier, you write, I think awe is an exercise. And this speaks to the discipline that you, mm-hmm. you talked about just a few minutes ago. I think awe is an exercise, both a doing and a being. It is a spiritual muscle of our humanity that we can only keep from atrophying if we exercise it habitually. So, Cole, how do you exercise your hope? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think more, more and more like any practice of hope I have is really a practice in memory. Um, mm. And for me, I think the two are really enmeshed that like almost in, in paradox, I think looking back can actually expand our imaginations for what could be. Mm. Um, and so I spend a lot of time uh, re- remembering, reading. Tony Morrison talks about practicing imagination for the interior lives of Black ancestors, uh, mm. which I th- I think is a really beautiful practice, and to to remember that, you know, my ancestors made a way that they found paths to 
survival, you know, that they found ways to laugh and create and construct, you know, it can, it, it can't help but do something to my own imagination, you know, mm. it, um, you know, only in remembering the artifact of the laughing barrel, you know, where mm. if listeners aren't familiar, where enslaved black folks would laugh into barrels because their their joy was forbidden but you know they they found this way this subversive kind of hidden tactic to kind of still maintain their joy and their laughing mm. but it's but it's only remembering you know the artifact of the laughing laughing barrel that i can preserve any imagination for uh laughter at a wake you know for mm. for for dancing in a war and and looking back i think retrains our vision or at least it retrains my vision so a lot of time yeah. a lot of time traveling <laughs> yeah yeah but those artifacts of memory i love that that concept because i and i think that's deeply biblical like mm-hmm. there, i mean how many times are israelites commanded to remember and they are told to create these artifacts of memory whether they're a, an altar or an ark of the covenant or whatever to, to remember God's faithfulness. Um, there's something, uh, but I, yeah, I think we do. We live these such insular kind of individualized lives. What I love about your work is your call to remember those who have gone before us as a way of connecting to our deeper selves. Because when we only look at the world through our own experiences or existence or time and space, we can forget so much of, of who we are and, and what the world is. And so to call us to this task of remembering our ancestors, remembering their joys, remembering their sorrows, their laments, I think is really, really good work and, you know, a message that we would all benefit from mm-hmm. if we tuned in. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think one misunderstanding about hope is that many people seem to think that hope stands in opposition to lament or to Mm -hmm. anger. Um, But you write about how hope and lament sing in harmony. Um, And I I don't mean to be annoying and keep reading your own words to you. It's just, they're just so beautiful, but I love this is, (laughs) this is from page 98 of this year flesh. You, you write um, in lament. Our task is never to convince someone of the brokenness of this world. It is to convince them of the world's worth in the first place. True lament is not born from that trite sentiment that the world is bad, but rather from a deep conviction that it is worthy of goodness. I can only wonder why we have so many depictions of the cross with Christ looking stoic and resolved and so few with him crying out in pain and abandonment. When I read the story, he does not seem composed. He seems devastated. I Let me just say a hearty agreement to that because like Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane to me is mm-hmm. the most fascinating story in all of scripture. Um, and you go on, when we reconstruct a Christ whose very face remains unmoved, how are we to trust that he feels or longs for anything at all? A passionless savior cannot be trusted to save. I have never felt closer to God than when he has tears running down his face. I don't delight in this, but by this, I know that I am seen. Mm. Wow. I uh, So beautiful. I, I guess you. I just want 
to hear you talk a little bit more. I mean, since we're focusing on the incarnation here and, mm-hmm. and Advent, what, how do you see Christ embodying this harmony between lament and hope? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think about, well, I think of a lot and maybe the, the story that folks would be most familiar with is the resurrection of, of Lazarus. It, Lazarus, and you have this really peculiar and beautiful moment of grief um, of, of Christ weeping for, for his friend. And, um, you know, certainly no one would dare tell, you know, Jesus to get up and, you know, hope in God and kind mm-hmm. of dust himself off and, and believe. And I mean, I, I'm someone who kind of believes that Christ knew what was to come and, and knew that he was just shortly going to restore life to, to to Lazarus. And so I think of that moment as, as so strange and so important as we remember that grief and, and lament is in no way emptied of hope, you know, um, by default. I I think it really is a, a form of hope, a form of, um, I mean, Jasmine Wards says, uh, but this grief for all its awful weight insists that he mattered. And, and, mm. and, and I think about that, the way that lamenting grief insists in, in, on the dignity of every person and piece of creation. And I, I like, I like to think that Christ knew that acutely that, you know, Lazarus's very dignity depended didn't depend on his um merited I should say Lazarus's very dignity merited a a kind of call of lament um mm. I find so much beauty in that now this is less this this doesn't have to do with Christ but there's another story in scripture that comes to mind um that I find myself thinking about during advent because I do think it's a story of the in between and um a really painful and liminal space of a lot of expectation. And it's in Ezra when um, the people, people who were, you know, in coming out of exile are given permission to rebuild the temple. And there's mm-hmm. this um, beautiful kind of short moment that, that Ezra approaches where the, they're, they're rebuilding the temple and the, the foundations are being laid and uh, the elders the people uh, who had seen the former temple, they begin to weep. Mm. But everyone else, you know, is kind of rejoicing and, and laughing and, you know, celebrating, you know, the foundations are being laid again, you know, something something new is being rebuilt. There's a, a bit of a resurrection happening. Uh, at, but the elders begin to weep. And uh, the the language in the text is like the the no one could distinguish the sounds of weeping from the mm-hmm. sounds of the people laughing and the people yeah. made such a noise it was heard far away and it's i just i i am so captivated by this moment this very complicated moment of the liminal what it means to carry memory and ca- carry memory of what should have never been you know a destruction yeah. that was so painful and yet also with the knowledge that something is being made 
again and rebuilt. Yeah. And that it was just a beautiful kind of intergenerational and, and complicated emotional exchange where both were permitted, you know, the hope of, of the temple being rebuilt and, and the, the grief that was still tied to that, to that land and to that space. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I love, that's one of my, uh, yeah, the most captivating stories in scripture for me as well. And I love the detail of the sound could be heard far away. Yes. Like how, how gorgeous to think of that, that cacophony of sound, you know, traveling across the hillsides and echoing on the hillsides. We live here in the mountains. And so any noise you make seems to <laughs> resound and come back to you again and again and again, because it echoes off a million hillsides here. Mm -hmm. And so that image is really um, visceral for me um, to think about. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I think that would be a great, maybe challenge to offer people um, this week as we focus on hope is what are your artifacts of memory? Because that's the thing about hope is hope is forward facing. Mm -hmm. Isn't that, what is that verse in Romans? I think it's Romans eight for who hopes and what he has already seen, but we hope for what we do not see and we wait eagerly for it. Like it's obviously something about the future, but it depends on information, I guess, that we glean from the past. Uh, in many ways, and what we what we know to be true because of what memory tells us, um, and so that may be something I know I would like to do this week. Are yeah, what what are my artifacts of memory that are informing me this week about what's true, and and what's good, and what's hard, and all of the above. Um, so, Cole, you have a new book coming out, and uh, tell us a little bit about it and why you decided to write it. Yes, um, my next book is Black Liturgies. Um, it's a collection of prayers and poetry and letters and contemplative questions uh, on what it means to kind of retain your humanity, or at least attempt to. Mm kind of retain your your full humanity. And yeah, I wrote it because of the the project that that I started online um Black Liturgies. I I think many people kind of expected it to be the the first book and so I'm really grateful that people kind of waited <laughs> waited for it this long and um cared for this here flush so well in the world, but I I wanted a a kind of artifact for for <laughs> us, an artifact for a kind of black connection with the divine and the black mm. interior world, which I think has something to say about you know humanity in general as well. Um, mm. Has something to teach each of us. Uh, so yes, I'm very excited for it to be in the world and to be held by people. It's available for for pre-order now and comes out January 16th. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Folks do pre-order the book. I know authors are always talking about pre-orders and people might get annoyed with us, but it really does help the book uh, kind of get mm -hmm. the visibility that it needs for people that are looking for something like it. And uh, it helps, it helps authors do what we do. And um, so yeah, do check it out. Do give it a pre-order and Cole, where can people find you online if they want mm -hmm. to, um, if they're curious about this important work that you're doing, where, where can they find you? Yes. Um, my website is colearthurreilly.com. 
blackcom. And if you're a social media person, you can find me on Instagram at Black Liturgies for that specific project or at Cole Arthur Riley. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you for your thoughts on 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 hope. I, I think we need hope now. Well, I don't know. Sometimes people say we need it now more than ever. And I I don't know. I don't really love that phrase because I think we've always needed it. And every generation has needed it for one reason or the other. Yes. But the world has felt heavy in, in recent weeks. And so what you've, what you've given us today and through your work every day is, is a gift. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is the psalm from the lectionary from week one of Advent. Psalm 80, verses 1 through 7 and 17 through 19. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us scorn, you make us the scorn of our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. But let your hand be upon the one at your right hand, the one whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will never turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. Joy to the Lord.